Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Okay, everybody, welcome back. I'll tell you what, I'm going to start with the Crumbly trial. I want to get into that and some of the details regarding day four, which is currently going on, but they're during their lunch break as I'm recording this. So a number of updates there. Uh, I have one education story, which is kind of jab-related also, and then a number of jab-related things, specifically some documentation to bring your way as well. Okay, first, the Crumbly trial. Uh, this is getting interesting, and it's frankly getting a little bit better for the defense, and it's getting worse for the prosecution, in my humble opinion. Uh, let's see. Okay, sorry, I'm looking at my notes here. Day two, we already went over, and again, day three was just the other day. That would have been Monday, was day three. At the beginning of day three, they talked first with the owner or part owner of a horse barn where Jennifer Crumbly owned two horses and they took care of these two horses on this property. So there was that exchange again. What kind of exchanges did you have with Jennifer Crumbly and, and sort of a, a back and forth texting, this, that, and the other? Again, not necessarily a witness that had any information to share. Again, there was no outside of the horses' conversations, I guess, R regarding the two of them. Uh, you know, they never got together and, and hung out with one another. There was none of that. It was more of just, again, a horse barn existing in a community where individuals would pay to have their horses there and, and taken care of and so on and so on. So very little communication regarding her son or her family. Um, the horse barn owner didn't, I, I, I don't think, ever met nor talked with Ethan Crumbly at any particular time. Uh, she did make mention that one time Jennifer Crumbly called her son weird. That was about it. And then she basically, again, left the stand and, and she was done. The second witness, however, this is where the thing really gets interesting, certainly within the actual school environment itself. The second witness was Sean Hopkins, who was the actual counselor at the time in the building. And Sean Hopkins testified that he is on leave from the Oxford School District until the end of the year. So again, is he going to get fired? I don't know. Is he on paid administrative leave right now? Possibly. Um, they've been supporting him this whole time anyway and employing him this whole time. So again, as you've heard me say, and as I've written in the substacks, this entire trial and the documentation and the people involved I mean, I have to summarize the whole thing kind of quickly here before I get into Sean Hopkins more specifically in his testimony, but the entire landscape here is a complete indictment on the American K-12 school system. It's a total indictment on the entire thing, that the place is filled with incompetence, that it's filled with bad policy, that it's filled with inconsistency, it's filled with discretion. No one's following, again, any policy of any kind. They, can't, they don't memorize the policy. They don't have it at hand quickly. And like I said earlier, they don't, they don't follow it. They just don't know what it is. Again, they, they pass the buck. They kick the can down the road. It's a thousand things. So there's that. And that's worth remembering, I think, throughout this entire process, certainly all of the time. Uh, because again, all of these employees who are testifying these individuals consistently blame COVID. They blame it constantly. Well, the pandemic this and the pandemic that, and the mask wearing this and the COVID that. I mean, these were the people enforcing a lie, which means you can't rely on these individuals to enforce the truth, let alone know what the truth is, let alone look for it. Again, these aren't thinking people. This is the problem here. It's a big problem. But with that aside for a second, now we had Sean Hopkins. Sean Hopkins gets up there, and again, he's effeminate, so he's, he's probably gay. Either way, he was referencing restorative practices a couple of times, and he was stating again that we use restorative practices instead of discipline and XYZ. His testimony was disturbing and again highlighted his incompetence. He saw Ethan's homework, which was math homework, I might add geometry, which he was not doing well in. He was failing. I mean, guilty as charged. I almost failed geometry myself. Either way, at the time, on this math homework again, he drew a picture of a gun. He drew a picture of a person. 
And then there were at least three phrases on it. And one of them was, there's blood everywhere. Another one said something like, I can't stop the voices or something along those lines. And then there was another phrase, which was, again, rather damning. When seeing this homework and knowing about these communications back and forth, that ultimately was when they decided to contact the parents. During his testimony, he was trying to blame the parents initially, just like he said or stated in the guidepost report, that the way that the parents addressed Ethan when they walked into the building and walked into his office to have this parent conference was a strange interaction. He basically said, well, they didn't hug him and they didn't even really look toward his, you know, look his way and X, Y, Z. That's not necessarily unusual. And again, if if an individual is in trouble in school, as Ethan was in trouble, although according to the school administrators and certainly the people handling him, he wasn't in trouble of anything, which is a big problem, which I'll get to later. But they were trying to, again, blame the parents and basically say that they must be neglectful parents because of their interaction with their son during that brief moment in time. Again, neglectful, possibly. Certainly, it seemed to be the case. Uh, but either way, uh, again, with, with that aside, Jennifer Crumbly's not guilty of killing four people. And it's not manslaughter. She, she wasn't responsible for this. So, again, Sean Hopkins' testimony just proved that he is beyond incompetent. And that, again, it's a massive indictment on school counselors and the policies that they have to follow. Again, he didn't even know what the policies were. He stated that they wanted to send him home, but they couldn't. And then, unfortunately, this is where the, where the defense lawyer, Shannon Smith, dropped the ball. She didn't spend any time asking Sean Hopkins about why they didn't search his backpack. Now, she asked later on, and she asked the next witness, which was the following day. But by then, it was a little too late because she should have asked him. Again, a school counselor can have a reasonable suspicion to check a backpack at any time. Certainly, after looking at math homework and knowing all of the stories that had been told by, his te- by Ethan's teachers to the counselor and Pamela Fine, who was the restorative practices director, and Nicholas Ejack, who was the, uh, the dean of students, again, responsible for basically the same kinds of things that the counselor is, certainly from a mental and emotional health standpoint and a discipline standpoint. So, again, everybody's passing the buck and everybody's saying, well, it's this person's responsibility and, and it's that person's responsibility. But again, not a single employee looked at that math homework and that math worksheet and thought that this was suspicious and thought, we need to check this kid's backpack. We can't send this kid back to class. We have to keep him here. We have to separate him from his backpack. And, and this is what has to be done. Um, and then again, meet with the parents or, or contact the parents and make it abundantly clear to them that he can't come back the following day, that he needs to be under their care or someone else's care, but not the school's. None of that happened. None of that happened. As, as the story goes, and as we know, the counselor sent him back to class. The kid ate lunch, and then that's when, uh, after that, when he, he started to kill people and, and shoot up the place. Um, again, Sean Hopkins' testimony is, it, it was just over an hour long, if memory serves. It, it really was an absolute indictment on the profession of school counselors and how, again, their judgment can be remarkably terrible. But again, the defense lawyer didn't do a very good job, in my humble opinion, either of asking all of the policy and procedure questions. You know, how, how many backpacks have you checked over the years? Do you check backpacks? Is that your responsibility or someone else's? What goes into checking a backpack? You, uh, you, you didn't seem to think that he was a, a threat to anybody else other than himself. So if he was a threat to himself, or engaging in what was testified to as suicidal ideation. And that basically what was written on the homework by Ethan Crumbly fit the definition of suicidal ideation, that he had the idea of either killing himself or what have you. That that alone should have been enough to have him removed from the building. 
that alone should have been enough to search his person and his belongings. But none of that happened. And again, even Sean Hopkins was contradicting himself in that. He was saying, well, I didn't think he was going to kill himself. I, I think that he was maybe thinking about it. I mean, this is, you know, this is, I, I, I hate to laugh, but, you know, this is the fine line that these people are, are uh, selecting, so to speak. I mean, this is, the, this is the hair splitting that they're doing, and it makes no sense. If, he, if a student at any point is doing something like everything that Ethan Crumbly was doing, sleeping in class, failing at least one class, not doing well, Again, he was a, a BCD student by and large. Again, grades falling over the course of, of, of the years, looking more and more demoralized from a visual standpoint, with or without the mask on. And, uh, and, and again, drawing these things that he's drawing and talking the way that he's talking, which, by the way, as I stated earlier, Restorative practices is designed to basically allow the student the opportunity to talk their way out of a situation. Yes, I understand what I did was wrong. I apologize. I won't do it again. Then the administration goes, great, problem solved. And then they send them right back to class, assuming that everything's been fixed. Meanwhile, the student is smiling behind their back or crossing their fingers behind their back because they know that they just talked their way out of a situation because they can talk their way out of these situations. Again, the point is, is that everything that Crumbly was doing was indicative of a kid who, who was crying for help. I mean, he needed help. That was beyond immediate. And again, you would think that checking a backpack and not letting him return to class and monitoring him throughout the rest of the day, and then, of course, not letting him come back to school, would have been the thing to do if, in fact, the counselor, as he stated and testified to, that he could have been a threat to his own life then that's what you do. You don't ignore everything and, and pat him on the back and say, I'm here for you, Ethan, you'll be fine. If you ever want to talk X, Y, Z, and then you, know, you send him back to class. That's, that's not how it gets handled. That's just not how it gets handled. So there was Sean Hopkins. And again, uh, he, he was never asked about policy and, and the whole backpack issue never came up with Sean Hopkins. Huge missed opportunity. However, then day four rolls around. The next day, and Nick Ejack or Nicholas Ejack was the first person on the stand. Nicholas Ejack was the dean of students. This guy was dumber than a bag of forks, and I I mean that. I mean Sean Hopkins isn't bright by any stretch, but Nicholas Ejack is right there with him. He openly stated that he didn't have reasonable suspicion to search his backpack. And this, again, was where the defense actually did a better job this time around because the backpack got brought up and was asked about, Nicholas Ejack was asked about the backpack routinely. And again, he didn't have a good answer and was contradicting himself just like Sean Hopkins was. He was basically saying, well, Sean Hopkins' responsibility is to do this and do that, and I didn't have all the information, and I was brought into this a little bit late, but even so, I saw these emails, and we communicated this back and forth, and Ethan Crumbly wasn't on my radar, and blah, blah, blah. One of the, one of the big hang-ups was when, at the very beginning, he's describing his background. Again, he's, he's openly stated that he was a dean of students at another school, and then he quit that job or was laid off, and then he came to Oxford where he was a full-time substitute. And then he became the dean of students after that. So again, no offense, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but either way, that, that was sort of his, his professional upbringing, I guess. But again, with that aside, the, when the actual defense lawyer got a hold of him, she started to go after him. And you could tell that his posture had changed because he knew that he was essentially being blamed for what had occurred or for not doing his job. And he knew that this was coming. So as a result, he stood firm and he got defensive, uh, and he again said, well, it's, it's, it's not my job. And the biggest shock throughout his testimony was that after being shown Ethan Crumbly's math homework from geometry class, where he draws a gun, draws a person, and then the three alarming phrases that were 
that were written by Ethan on the homework, that that didn't raise itself to the level of reasonable suspicion to check his person, check his backpack, his sweatshirt that he was wearing, whatever. They didn't pat him down. They didn't, they didn't do any of that. In fact, I don't believe there was even a conversation about it. Now, the defense lawyer didn't ask that. They didn't say, did you, did you all talk about checking him at all? Or did you just assume that we shouldn't because you weren't alarmed? And, and again, I, I believe that they simply stated, even though they weren't asked that, they just stated, well, we, we, we didn't think about it because it didn't raise itself to that level of suspicion. You've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding. The kid is watching a video of people shooting one another on his cell phone, and they openly stated again that that's not unusual. Nicholas Ejack was like, yeah, that's not unusual. Students have cell phones, and they can pretty much watch whatever they're watching, and, and that's not unusual. Well, should they be doing that? That's the question. Does that, does that break classroom policy? And he was like, well, it's not a discipline issue. That's a classroom management issue uh, you know, on the, part of the, on the part of the teacher. And again, even with that aside, the homework alone would have been enough to search his person, but they didn't. That's the biggest issue here. And again, like I said earlier, everybody was just passing the buck. Everybody was going, well, it's, it's this person's responsibility, and we all have to agree on something if we're going to do something, and blah, blah, blah. And again, it was clearly evident that he had been coached, that he thought that the interaction that the Crumbly parents had with their son upon entry into their parent conference was unusual to him. Well, the defense lawyer objected and was like, it doesn't matter what he thinks. I mean, he's providing his opinion on a, on a personal interaction. But again, unfortunately, he wasn't even asked about previous instances where he had checked a backpack or had parent conferences or XYZ. I mean, none of that got brought up. Again, when the defense was done and the prosecution was done with EJAC, the defense came back at him with one more question and said, at any point in the parent conference, did you ask the parents if they owned a gun? And he looked back at the defense and he said, no, we didn't ask that question. And she said, none of you asked that question. None of you asked the question whether or not the Crumbly parents or Jennifer Crumbly owned a gun, even though he had just drawn a gun and had talked about in this particular math worksheet about the voices won't stop, there's blood everywhere, and like I said, another phrase. N none of that was, was reasonably suspicious to you <laughs> to, to even ask that question as to whether or not he owned a gun or was familiar with guns or whether the family owned guns. And he goes, nope, it, it just didn't, it didn't come up. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't something we were thinking about. Because they're not thinking. That's the issue here. That's the thread that runs through this whole thing. They aren't thinking. They're all thinking that they can minimize any situation, that as administrators they can talk their way in or out of any situation, and then, of course, they just believe the student no matter what. Well, Ethan was interested in video games, they said. That's why he drew the gun. Oh. Well, if Ethan said so, then it must be true. We, we should just believe all students all of the time. What's the problem? It was beyond ridiculous. Again, his testimony was embarrassing because he was contradicting himself also on this point, which I, I mentioned earlier, that he himself, Nicholas Ejack, as the dean of students, stated that he was also responsible not just for discipline, but he was responsible for the mental and emotional health and social emotional learning so to speak of students but he also said that every single thing that had ever been brought up about Ethan including the homework didn't reach the level of discipline that him again uh drawing things on his homework and and watching the video and sleeping in class and failing that that wasn't a discipline issue as far as he was concerned do you see the twisted mentality of what schools have become in America when that's the case? Again, back in the day, if you slept in class when I went to school, you would usually be disciplined. 
If it was the first time you fell asleep, probably not. Somebody might say something to you, maybe they wouldn't, but if it happened two, three, four times, then yes, somebody would say something and there would be an intervention of some kind. Certainly a parent conference. Again, in particular, if there were failing grades and, you know, uh, somebody was watching something that seemed rather suspicious. And then again, drawing and, and writing very suspicious things on homework that w- where it's not even relevant to write it on the homework. All of these are massive red flags that the Crumbly parents were never told about until the day of the shooting. But the school administrators and school teachers knew. And again, getting back to Sean Hopkins, the counselor, real quick, he testified that the first time that he had heard about Ethan Crumbly was in the fall of 2021. That's not true. He first heard about Ethan Crumbly in the spring semester the previous school year of that same calendar year, but just earlier, either in May or April, when again, a, uh, a particular teacher had a concern about him, sleeping in class, failing, seeming sad and depressed. These are all red flags. So again, Sean Hopkins was being misleading or lying or not remembering, whatever, whatever phrase you want to use. But again, Nicholas Ejack on day four was embarrassing. This was a guy who had the responsibility to flat out pull his head out of his ass and start paying attention to what this kid was doing. The homework, again. For him to actually say that the homework alone didn't reach the level of reasonable suspicion was astounding to me. Absolutely astounding. But again, the defense lawyer did come back at the end and say, so you didn't even ask if they owned a gun. And he was like, nope, we didn't. Yeah. He's a dummy. He's just a dummy. Um, I will say this too. The same day that Sean Hopkins testified, the, the very last thing they did on day three was they showed the surveillance footage inside of the interrogation room of the Crumbly parents when they brought them to the police station after they had arrested Ethan. So Ethan is in the room next to them, and he's handcuffed to a pole that's basically screwed into the wall as he's sitting in a chair. The parents aren't in that room with their son at that moment. They, they come in later. But they enter the, the interrogation room with these two detectives or sergeants or what have you. And one of the sergeants was testifying in the trial, which is where this video footage came up. And it was evident that both Crumbly parents were upset. They were, they were clearly disappointed. They were shocked. They were in shock. Um, the father looked distraught. The mother was distraught, too. She was describing, again, the math homework and the conference that they had just had. With the, with the counselor in the school that day, earlier that morning. And again, everybody in the room seems shocked. Um, and she's searching through her phone. She's looking for more communication to try to tell the particular police officers. She raised the question about a lawyer, if memory serves, do we need a lawyer? And then again, her husband was like, I think we need a lawyer. Uh, you know, they, they didn't divulge too much more information after that. They were cooperative and they were upset. Then the police officers looked at him and said, do you want to go see your son and say something to your son before we process him in XYZ? And they were like, yeah. And they stood up, again, looking disappointed, dejected, and and sad. And they walked in, and they sat down, and they just stared at him. And he was kind of staring at the ground, not looking at his parents. And they just kind of stared at him like, what the hell did you just do? And then, again... Uh, they got up and they started to walk out and the mom turned around and she looked at him and said, why did you do this? Why, why would you do this? And again, at that, at that moment is when Ethan looked at both of them and was still looking at the ground, really, but he just repeatedly start, started saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. He just kept saying it over and over and over again. And then they moved back into the next room, and you could still hear him saying it repeatedly. And then the father started crying. And again, they were, as parents, they were both in shock. I have to reiterate this, ladies and gentlemen, because it's important. This case is a can of worms for so many reasons. And one of them, as you've heard me say before, 
proves just this case existing. It proves that the other quote unquote school shootings were fake, that the Iowa thing was fake, that the uh, Nashville, Uvalde, Sandy Hook, that they're fake. Because in a real one, this is what would happen. This is what we would see. This is what we would hear. There would be lawsuits. There would be trials. There would be all kinds of things taking place. Policies and procedures being not followed. People being investigated. People losing their jobs. That, that's what would happen. But again, that didn't happen in those fake shootings, but it's happening here. Which should prove to people, again, this happened and the other ones did not. So people have to have to wrap their arms around this and understand that the clues of fake school shootings are everywhere now. They're everywhere. This is an absolute case study on what happens during a real school shooting. Again, potential uh, criminal actions, certainly, and criminal charges, uh, uh, civil lawsuits, investigations, lawyers going back and forth, you name it. This is what happens in a real one. So that, again, that was the end of day three with Sean Hopkins with that video. And then, like I said, day four is actually still going on as, as I'm recording this right now. But Nicholas Ejack was the first to testify. And then they brought in Jennifer Crumbly's employer. Jennifer Crumbly worked as a advertising property agent, so to speak, within a real estate agency. And they brought in her boss. And her boss had very nice things to say about her. Um, you know, she she hardly brought up her family, did occasionally, uh, you know, was was a good employee, did the right things, so on and so on. So, again, not a witness that w that went well for the prosecution in any way. But that's it. That's where it stands now. That's my update on all of it. Again, I think it still favors the defense without a doubt. Again, you know, being an absent parent's not a crime. It's unfortunate. And she admitted, I think, to the to the boss, or I think it was the boss on at least one occasion, that she fe she felt like she had failed her son, and this was before the shooting. But they, you know, she openly admitted again before the shooting that she was going to get him help. That he they thought that he needed help and needed to talk to somebody, and you know, a number of other things. Unfortunately, it was it was too late at that point because the shooting started to take place shortly thereafter. Certainly in the days following. And there you go. That's where it stands now. My hope is that they put on the stand Pamela Fine, who was the restorative practices director. I hope that the jury gets a good taste of what restorative practices is via that testimony. And that hopefully uh, Pamela Fine is grilled as to, again, why they didn't search the bag. Have you ever searched a bag before? What does that entail? What's reasonable suspicion to you? Why did you all? not believe that he was a threat to other people or even himself? And if he was a threat to himself, why did you send him back to class? Why didn't you intervene in other ways? What exactly do you do here? What, ex <laughs> what exactly is your job? Uh, again, they're not the sharpest knives in the drawer, and they've got the entire school apparatus in our country in the spotlight right now. Like I said earlier, and I'm going to keep saying it, this case is a massive indictment of the entire quote-unquote profession. It really shows people it's an unmanageable situation, without a doubt, because the people in the building can't manage what's going on inside the building. They just can't. And there's no accountability. There's none. So Pamela Fine should be next. Hopefully they get to the school principal. Same thing. You know, there's lots of there's lots of other people to ask questions of. Certainly, I would bring in the school teachers. I would I would again subpoena the school teachers and bring them in. Were you concerned about Ethan? And then I would ask them again if I was if I was there and I, and I was the defense lawyer. I would ask them about their perceptions of the school counselor. I would ask them their perceptions of the administration. I would ask them about their perceptions of restorative practices, the school policy, the discipline. What do they think about all of it? And then, of course, I would ask the, the school teachers, why didn't you contact the parents beforehand and have a conversation with them beforehand? Why didn't you do that? Isn't that also part of your responsibility as a school teacher? And the answer is yes. 
and if they say no, they're lying. They too, again, are passing the buck. They would probably say, no, it's the counselor's job, or no, it's the dean of students, and it's their responsibility, or we have to get a hold of the counselor first, and then the counselor's the one who makes the call. No, 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 no. That's not the way it works. A school teacher can talk with a parent and make a parent conference anytime they want. In fact, it happened like this when I taught school all of the time. We would receive an email as one of as the teachers of a particular student. We would receive an email from the teacher who had the main concern about the student who wanted to have a parent conference. And then sometimes in most situations that particular school teacher would say, I'm going to have this parent conference with these parents for this particular student, but if you all want to sit in, you're more than welcome to. And of course, we all would. Very rarely was there a parent conference that would take place where a staff member, you know, again, a, a student's teacher was not there. We would almost always go at the exact same time. Now, there are also plenty of situations where that's not the case. There are endless situations where individuals would say, well, they're not having a problem in my class, so I'll give you a grade printout or something along those lines and throw them a couple of compliments because they're doing a good job, and then you, you would pass that off to the parents so that the parents would, at the very least, get it. But again, I would always go to parent conferences. I, I never dipped out of one, but there are some certain situations that are specific to a school teacher in a particular classroom regarding a student. At which point, if it doesn't have anything to do with the other school teachers, then the other teachers wouldn't attend. That was rare, but it, again, it would happen. So, either way, if actual school teachers in this situation were on the stand, which I pray to God they will be, they have to be asked those questions. They have to. They have to be asked, again, the question about the backpack. You know, at, at any point, did you ask them to check his backpack? I mean, you saw his homework. You saw the gun, you saw the, the bullet looking up on his cell phones and, you know, the, the other things that he was doing on his cell phone, you know, by watching a video of some movie where people are shooting each other and, and whatever else. I mean, did you as a school teacher think to say to anybody, check his backpack? I, I, find, it, I find it very suspicious that no one even thought about it, so they say. I don't buy that. I don't buy it. Somebody brought it up. Somebody thought to themselves, his backpack needs to be checked, and it didn't happen. And that would have been, again, the turning point in the whole situation. So there you go. I'll bring you more updates on, uh, on Friday regarding that, and that's that. Okay. Education stuff. Again, not really education, unfortunately, uh, jab-related. But it's an indictment on the environment as well. This is from 13abc.com, Action News WTVG. High school girls basketball player collapses, dies during game, reports say. Mominess, Illinois, if I'm saying that right? Girls high school basketball player reportedly collapsed and died this week in Illinois. According to multiple reports, 14-year-old Amari Critty. I'm saying that correctly, died on Thursday after collapsing on the court while playing a home game at Mominis High School. The Daily Journal reports that the school district superintendent, Shannon Anderson, issued the following statement, quote, here it is, the same old quote for all these jabbed dead students. We're deeply saddened to confirm the heartbreaking news of the passing of one of our ninth grade students on January 25th, 2024. Our thoughts and condolences go out to the family and friends affected by this tragic loss. Our primary focus right now is on supporting one another and providing the necessary resources for our community to cope with this loss. Amari's family has created a GoFundMe to help them during this difficult time. Again, the million-dollar question, the rhetorical question, were they jabbed? Most certainly. This would have to be a most certainly. And I have to tell you, this continues to just blow me away, the number of individuals that this is happening to and the number of families that this is happening to. And yet, these individuals and, again, their families seem to be clueless that this is the element and the variable in the equation. 
the shot taking. Did they take the shots or not? If they did, then there's your answer. I'm continuing to witness this also, by the way, in my casual observance of YouTube. The number of YouTube videos that exist out there of people talking about a spouse that they lost or a family member that they lost, certainly within the last couple of years, and then they're openly stating, I'm, I'm just, I, I just can't figure out why, why it happened. They were, they were young and they were healthy and then they just dropped dead. I, I just can't figure it out. Again, this lack of knowledge about what goes on in the real world is astounding to me. And this right here, unfortunately, is part of the problem. Again, these individuals making these YouTube videos and having these YouTube channels and, and doing whatever it is that they're doing on their channels is, is beyond odd to me to some extent because they're not bringing up anything of any real importance. And if they are talking about their loss, they're not asking people in these videos, at least they don't seem to be asking people, you know, does anybody know why this happened? Is there something I don't know? Can somebody in the comments section tell me about something that, you know, I should know about? It's like, well, yeah, of course. Are they jabbed? Did they take the shots? Again, young, healthy, fit people don't fall over. It doesn't happen. Not to mention the trend of this happening. You would think that people would be paying attention at the very least to this trend. The people around them in their personal lives. The things in the news. Oh, look, another kid fell over. Jeez, that seems strange. My family member just fell over the other day. I wonder if there's a connection. I mean, there's, there's no... You know, I don't want to say there's no thinking going on. I, there certainly is among many, but some of these individuals, they just aren't piecing it together. You know, I get sick every year now, and I never used to. Strange. What's, what's changed? What have you done over the last three years that you've never done in the previous three? But again, it, it blows me away. This, this lack of just mental connections at such a very basic level is astounding. No wonder our country's falling apart and is apart. I mean, this is a huge problem. It's psychosis. It's brainwashing. It's psychological torture. One operation after another. This is the result. There was this post on Great Awakening. When I, I wanted to read again, it's it's heartbreaking, but this is indicative of kind of the entire landscape here. It was titled "It's Happening." My family is falling apart. They said the following quote: "My brother, who proudly displayed his vaccine card on Facebook for all to see." had a lupinectomy for a cancerous mass this past December. He was airlifted a couple days ago after having a grand mal seizure and a stroke. Today he's in a coma. His future is uncertain. He's 59 years old. His wife, age 57, started having mini strokes immediately following her jabs. Her doctors, of course, are baffled, and she can't work much anymore. My brother hasn't spoken to me since all of this fuckery began because I was so vocal and opinionated, quote-unquote, about not being sheep willingly accepting their own slaughter. I'm currently taking care of my ailing parents, both jabbed, despite of my begging and pleading, and so I absolutely cannot leave the state to go see my brother. I've been praying for him and his wife. I forgive them for everything, especially him just as I myself desperately need forgiveness. My brother and his wife were both looking forward to their retirement. I'm struggling even though I've known this day was coming for almost four years. I still cannot believe it's happening. Is this happening to families all across America? How will we survive? Unquote. The answer is yes, it is. And unfortunately, it's happening to these people, and many of them that it's happening to, aren't comparing the jabs to it. They just aren't. That leads me to this, which again was on Steve Kirsch's Substack page. Um, and I, again, you've heard me say before, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of his. I think he's an opportunist to some extent. Of course, he has the ghost writers, as A.J. Gochik's pointed out, and that's why he pumps all these articles out as quickly as he does and takes credit for it. 
Um, but either way, you know, he, he's got some decent information here, and it's certainly for some people. But there's this, and it was titled Survey, Nearly Half the Deaths Observed in U.S. Households Judged to be Due to the COVID Vaccine. It says, professionally done survey of sample of 1,000 American households done by market research professional Leonard Murphy, uh, executed by TAP Research, it says. So here's the executive summary. It says, I engaged in a professional market research expert or engaged a professional, I, I don't know, typo, I guess, Leonard Murth, Murphy, rather, to do a survey about vaccine injuries and deaths in American households. He created the survey with some input from me. I personally funded it. The list he used was from a third-party professional firm and not biased in any way. It says the results will stun you. 1,000 American households were surveyed, and the survey demographics were chosen to be representative of America. Of the 1,000 households surveyed, 194 reported a death in their household since 2021. It says here's the punchline. Nearly half the respondents thought the death was due to the COVID vaccine. So it says here 102 of them out of 194 said no, that they didn't think it was the COVID-19 vaccine, and 92 of them said yes, they did think it was the COVID vaccine. Again, I think this continues to prove the point I just made, which is that this mental divide of people being able to determine what caused it and what didn't, or them coming to grips with what caused it as opposed to what they think caused it, is, is clearly present. This divide is beyond evident. And unfortunately, in the rest of the article, uh, this is where Kirsch, again, sort of exposes the fact that he's in this for the money. As he says, you know, that, that wasn't the most astounding part of the entire survey, but if you want to find out what that is, you need to subscribe and you need to pay. Well, I'm not doing that because that's, that's low. Just tell people what it is without charging people. Either way, there is this, um, moving on here slightly, Sage Journals published this particular article recently, kind of hot off the press, it's January 27th anyway. Jessica Rose was one of the authors, along with a Nicholas Hulsher, if I'm saying that right, and Peter McCullough. The abstract of this, again, is, is problematic. I understand the approach they're taking, but again, COVID doesn't exist. There's no such thing. And publishing these articles is perpetuating a lie, which is a huge problem. So the abstract to this, I should say first, the title is Determinants of COVID-19 Vaccine-Induced Myocarditis. That's undeniable. But here's the abstract, and it says the following, quote, Following the rollout of the Pfizer-Moderna-Janssen coronavirus disease 2019 COVID-19 injections in the United States, millions of individuals have reported adverse events using the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, or VAERS. The objective of this analysis is to describe the myocarditis data in VAERS and the COVID-19 vaccines as potential determinants of myocarditis. Again, you know, as I stated earlier, we know COVID isn't real. It's never been isolated. Viruses don't exist. It's a series of symptoms as a result of poisoning from the 2019 flu shot, along with, I'm sure, 5G and, and other elements, all sort of mixed together or turned on at different times. But continuously using COVID-19 as being a real thing, you know, this is, this is part of the issue here. Either way, for the purpose of this study, it continued, uh, and under the methods, it says, we used VAERS data to examine the frequency of reporting myocarditis since the beginning of the mass vaccination campaign and compared this with historical values in VAERS and COVID-19 vaccine administration data from the Our World in Data database. We examined myocarditis reports in VAERS in the context of sex, age, and dose. Statistical analysis was done using the student's t-test to determine statistically significant differences between ages among myocarditis adverse events and the chi-square test to determine relationships between cate uh, categorical variables rather, with statistical significance. The results, 
We found the number of myocarditis reports in VAERS after COVID-19 vaccination in 2021 was 223 times higher than the average of all vaccines combined for the past 30 years. This represented a 2,500% increase in the absolute number of reports in the first year of the campaign when comparing historical values prior to 2021. Demographic data revealed that myocarditis occurred most in youths, 50%, and males, 69%. A total of 76% of the cases resulted in emergency care and hospitalization. Of the total myocarditis reports, 92 individuals died, which was 3%. Now you have to keep in mind, as a little sidebar here, that would have been 3% died with myocarditis that were reported at the time. Again, you can die with myocarditis immediately, or you can live with myocarditis for an extended period of time, although not very long, but certainly within 10 years and still be alive within that time frame. So again, the people who have it right now, unfortunately, are going to expire because you can't survive with it usually beyond 10 years. Then you have to take into account the horrific fact that there are people who have it and don't know they have it because they aren't showing any symptoms yet. This is the depressing part of this reality. Either way, it continues. Let me get past the 3%. Myocarditis, it says, was most likely after dose 2. And it says the individuals less than 30 years of age were more likely than individuals older than 30 to acquire myocarditis. Again, this is based on the VAERS report, which, as we know, is not reliable. Uh, conclusion, it says, COVID-19 vaccination is strongly associated with a serious adverse safety signal of myocarditis, particularly in children and young adults, resulting in hospitalization and death. Further investigation into the underlying mechanisms of COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis is imperative, to create effective mitigation strategies and ensure the safety of COVID-19 vaccination programs across populations, unquote. Again, in any article, as you've heard me state before, in the conclusion, even with Peter McCullough, he should know better than to conclude that. He should say it causes myocarditis. We've determined as a result of, again, these results in just what is uploaded into VAERS, that these should be pulled from the market immediately, that this should not be a cause of death nor a symptom as a result of these shots, because that's not supposed to be the point. If this illness were real, which it isn't, COVID, quote-unquote, shouldn't the shot prevent it? Isn't that why the shot was created, so the story goes? Well, it doesn't prevent anything, which means it doesn't work which means you were lied to, which means the whole thing is a con, which means stop using the, the actual tool that is a part of the con. Now, as we know, there's a depopulation agenda in place, and this is the method for which they are carrying out this agenda. Again, free from this study, he could allude to something like that if he wanted to, but he needs to get on board with this, and this is, again, this is part of the issue. This is why there is some distance between he and Steve Kirsch and, say, for example, a Tom Rents, who, again, fully understands that this is a giant on purpose, that this is a government-driven Department of Defense foreign country-related thing that was purposefully carried out in order to do this. They've written it down. There's patents on these things. These shots have been manufactured or certainly worked on dating back to 2012. The year 2012, if not sooner than that. That should be enough to be suspicious. Again, Peter McCullough would do well, in my humble opinion, to get on the right side of this. But as we know, the reason he's not is because he doesn't want to lose his medical license. He still wants the ability to practice. He still wants the ability to publish these papers, even though, again, Jennifer Rose, who was one of the co-authors, is a researcher in this area. She's not a medical doctor. She has a PhD, which is great, and she's competent. But the problem is, is that, again, there are no viruses. There is no COVID. 
which means whatever shot is being introduced for a thing that doesn't exist is fraudulent. And then you have to look into, again, you have to ask the why. Why is this taking place? So I want to point back to the document that I brought up in the last episode from Health and Human Services that was signed off by Javier Becerra, if I'm saying his last name correctly. This document is alarming, in my humble opinion. They're, they're lumping again myocarditis, not myocarditis, I'm sorry, uh, Marburg, Marburg and Ebola into their COVID protocols and their COVID response. They're just adding, adding to it. I mean, what next? The common cold, so to speak, which as we know, again, is a natural symptom of our body getting rid of toxic cells. It's not a thing floating around in the air that we chomp on like Pac-Man, and then all of a sudden we change color and feel ill and whatever else. It's a natural occurrence, just like leaves falling off of trees, and just like leaves growing on trees in the springtime. It's a, it's a natural it's a natural state of the human body if the human body is, is run down too much. And again, there are endless reasons why that's the case. You have a compromised immune system, broken DNA, you don't take care of yourself, you have a high sugar diet, you're not hydrating, you're not exercising. I mean, there's a thousand reasons. But even so, the Health and Human Services document proves that there's government intervention here and that this government intervention is purposeful. And that going forward, they can take any illness, quote-unquote, real or imagined, and they can lump it all in now into this particular amendment that they've made and this particular documentation that they have, this declaration, as they call it, as if to say, we're going to tell everybody in America to do it this way. If we, if we say standing on the magical sticker on the floor is the be-all, end-all response to not only having COVID now, but Ebola and Marburg, and that these things, if we say they actually exist, even though they may not, but if we say that they do as government, you have to do what we tell you to do. And by we doing what we tell you to do, I mean companies, doctor's offices, hospitals, um, the manufacturing industry. I mean, it doesn't matter the line of work. Schools, universities, among others, I'm sure. All of them. They all then would have to do this thing again, no matter what. And the defense for those organizations being told to do this, unfortunately, would be if they follow orders from government again, they would say, well, Health and Human Services is telling us to do this, and they're the federal government, and well, we have to do it because HHS says so in this memo. I'm telling you, it's amazing. It's just amazing that people would go along with this again, and I think that they're teeing this up again. I think the document proves it. Why would they write and manufacture the document if they didn't have this on deck? I'm telling you, I almost wrote a substack about that, that very document, and I still might. Uh, I just, I can't emphasize it enough as being something I think that people are passing on. And for some reason, it's not being discussed at any great length. So again, that document exists under the government documents tab on my website, and it's the most recent one at the bottom of that giant numbered list. You can check it out yourself. Again, it's, it seems alarming to me, but that's my two cents on it. So Again, they wouldn't make these amendments to these documents regarding this subject if they weren't going to pull this card again. It's only a matter of time. Whether it be this year or next, they're going to pull it. If they, again, don't steal the election like they did in 2020 and they actually let Trump get back in, would they pull this again to, to say, oh, look, it just so happened to happen on Trump's watch? Well, he's to blame. See, this is where you arrest Javier Becerra. This is where you arrest the, the members of Health and Human Services, because let's face it, they're all criminals. You're either brainwashed or you're a criminal working for that organization. I mean, you have to be plumb stupid or, again, part of the problem here and part of the scheme to kill people. So HHS is dirty. There's no way around it. Getting back to Peter McCullough, though, very quickly, I do want to mention this, and again, 
like I said, I'll give him credit on this because he did. He does say it in this January twenty fourth article, which oddly enough was also co written by Jessica Rose. I mean, she's making the rounds in these publications, and Steve Kirsch as well is a part of this, along with a few others. But this was published and it was titled "COVID nineteen mRNA vaccines: Lessons Learned from the Registrational Trials and Global Vaccination Campaign." I'll read the abstract, because at the bottom of the abstract, finally, in the conclusion, they do say these shots have to be taken off the market, which again is something that he has said before and published before in conclusions of particular studies, but uh, I just wish that it would be a conclusion he would reach in every study, basically, or try to work it in any way that he could. Either way, here's the abstract. Our understanding of COVID-19 vaccinations is their impact on health and mortality has evolved substantially since the first vaccine rollout. Published reports of the original randomized phase 3 trials concluded that COVID-19 mRNA vaccines could greatly reduce COVID-19 symptoms. In the interim, problems with these methods, execution, and reporting of these pivotal trials have emerged. Reanalysis of the Pfizer trial data identified statistically significant increases in serious adverse events in the vaccine group. Side note very quickly, there was another piece of audio making the rounds, and I put it, I will put it again in the, in the war video, and I put it on my Gab page as well. And it was a medical, a medical doctor, a general practitioner, internal medicine, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, she openly stated that during the trials for these shots, I believe Pfizer specifically, that there were 4,200 and some odd children between the ages of six months and four years who were given these shots. And of those 4,200 some odd children, 3,000 of them died, or 3,000 of them at the very least stopped reporting during the study. They couldn't be reached or they expired or whatever whatever it was, whatever the actual specific reason was, they, they just stopped participating in the trial. As you've heard me say before, that's usually indicative of a serious health problem to where the parents then back off. My bigger question, of course, is what lunatic parent would serve up their child for a medical experiment? I mean, people do this in this country. This is still a thing. This has to stop. That's the bigger, I mean, that's the far bigger problem here is that we're still relying on the pharmaceutical industry and their mode of operation for dishing out anything that they want to the public. And there are people who are serving up their own children. I'm not sure I call them people. They're, they're monsters and they're stupid. but. They're serving up their own kids uh, as, as test subjects in these trials. It's beyond alarming. Just beyond alarming. I, I don't understand why any human would ever do that. I mean, it's right up there with you're driving down the highway, listening to the radio, and a commercial comes on the radio where it says, do you want to be a part of a trial? Do you want to be compensated for your time? You know, we're looking for people who used to smoke and we want to give you this pill to see if you'll stop smoking. You know, give us a call at this phone number and, and again, you'll be compensated for your time and blah, blah, blah. Who would do that? What kind of a human would, would say, you know what? Yeah, I want to do this. And more importantly, I want to serve my kid up for it also. This, this is the aspect of this that has to go away. This has to cease to exist in our entire country and throughout the global society, as it were. This is one of those huge moves that in the future has got to occur for all of us to see, and then we will know that the tide has turned. Then we will know that things are far better than they used to be. There's not a single thing that needs to be tested on human beings of any age whatsoever at all. It, it just doesn't need to be. Again, it's right up there with Anthony Fauci you know, uh, conducting some kind of a study or funding, funding a particular study that had to do with sand flies. And so he stuck beagle heads and, and live beagle dogs inside of a, you know, inside of these baskets where just their heads were in their ba in these baskets. And then the sand flies would eat the face off of these beagles. What psychopath does that? 
Anthony Fauci. That's who. Along with endless other individuals who, again, are doing this with regularity and thinking it's normal. Well, it's science, Sean. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, go to hell. I do, I do know what I'm talking about. We don't need to test what sandflies do to a dog's face. Under any circumstance, just like we don't need to be serving up newborn babies six months old to four-year-olds or anybody for that matter for such a, you know, for such a study. It's absurd. I digress. Let me get to the conclusion here. It says federal agency approval of COVID-19 mRNA vaccines on a blanket coverage population, population-wide basis had no support from an honest assessment of all relevant registrational data and commensurate consideration of risks versus benefits. Given the extensive, well-documented adverse events and unexpectedly high harm-to-reward ratio, that's putting it mildly, we urge governments to endorse a global moratorium on the modified mRNA products until all relevant questions pertaining to causality, residual DNA, and aberrant protein production are answered, unquote. Good. Good. Now end every study with that. Again, the jury is in on this. We, we know what's going on. I understand that these publications have to exist because you want a paper trail, but for the love of God. And we already know what's going on here. I want to finish with this. This was on Sasha Latipova's Substack page, which is sashalatipova.substack.com. Uh, her page is called Due Diligence and Art. She put together this 11-point summary, essentially, as to why emergency use authorization is wrong, if not downright illegal. And it is titled, Memo Regarding Emergency Use Authorization Countermeasures to Send to Your Doctor, Pharmacist, Employer, School Sheriff, County Commissioner, and State Lawmakers. Again, it's, a, it's another email to those people if you think that that would work. It's another avenue where you could communicate with these people as to, again, what, what is going on. The problem is this, and I've been over it on the show at length. Sheriff's departments aren't lawyers. You can send this to them, and they can even send it to their lawyers. But do you think that their lawyers are going to want to go up against Health and Human Services? Do you think that the local lawyers are going to want to go toe-to-toe with federal agencies? They don't want to touch them. And unfortunately, everything that we're experiencing right now boils down to a lack of education. It boils down to a lack of real knowledge about the world that we live in and what's actually happening. The evil that exists in this world, the scheming, the meddling, all of it. It's beyond disturbing. I will link this in the description below, but I want to read the uh, point 11, which is the final point of these 11 points, and then her summary at the end here. Point 11 says the following. It says, furthermore, there are no required standards for quality control in manufacturing. No inspections of manufacturing procedures, no lot release testing, and no prohibition on wide variability among lots no prohibition on adulteration, and no required compliance with current good manufacturing practices, or CGMP. Emergency use authorization products, even though unregulated and non-standardized, quote, shall not be deemed adulterated or misbranded, unquote. And she said, in summary, the process through which the emergency use authorization products enter interstate commerce and claims about their safety, efficacy, or contents are based solely on the Health and Human Services Secretary opinion, which require no supporting scientific evidence. Misrepresentation of safety, efficacy, or contents, excuse me, of EUA products is allowed by federal law. Seems like a problem, no? Seems like a big problem. In fact, in that HHS document, it said we aren't liable for any of this. We aren't liable for anything that, that goes wrong or any losses that are incurred, regardless of what those losses may be, lives or monetary or otherwise. I mean, they write themselves out of the law. It finishes and it says, thus, claims provided by the federal health authorities or manufacturers cannot be considered reliable sources of information, unquote. No kidding. No kidding. 
HHS can't be taken seriously. None of these organizations at this point can be taken seriously. Again, the die is cast on this. Why anybody is believing what any of these groups are saying, federal, state, or otherwise, even local, is, is beyond me. But the jury is in on these individuals. They have something else planned. They want to pull another card. We have to be aware of that. And we have to, again, sift through these documents sometimes as as much as we can, certainly when we come across them, and piece these things together because it's beyond evident that they want to pull something again. And And like this document points out, they're writing themselves out of the law. They're writing themselves out of being liable for anything. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, I'll catch you on Friday. More crumbly updates, I'm sure. More education and jab-related things as well. And I'll catch you then. Peace. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.